Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to another episode of the Bandwagon Podcast. And today um, is a guest and someone I've always been um, kind of tracking, to be honest. Um, just sounded really different, um, especially when given his opinions on radio or any kind of anything that he gets kind of tasked with. And I quite rightly getting the um, what I would say the trajectory that's deserved on on the on the BBC Asia Network and. Uh, as fast becoming one of the leading lights on the, on the radio station himself. So, Haroon Rashid, welcome to the Bandwagon Podcast. Ricky, thanks so much. That was a really nice intro as well. So, thank you. Yeah, I didn't even rehearse that, so that was pretty uh, pretty natural. Good, you did well for one take. That was very good. Oh, thanks. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that, well, that's a big compliment. So, Haroon, like, what what's up with yourself? What are you what are you up to at the moment? So, I am uh, right now in a very exciting phase because I have just finished a job that not many people know that I was doing um, ahead of starting my brand new show on the Asian Network. So, people know me mostly as a presenter on the Asian Network. They know me as the entertainment reporter on the Asian Network. Uh, but I also have like a full-time job or had a full-time job uh, at the station behind the scenes as a news editor as well. So, I've just finished that job um, and on a, on a little bit of a break before I start my new show. Mm. And you know when you, I mean, like from from a, a customer point of view, less to, from a, a citizen point of view, we don't necessarily kind of see those mechanisms around back of the uh, uh, at the back of a show. We we always just see the kind of finished product within there. In in your in your opinion, what do you prefer? You always see kind of uh, stars. You know, you're in, obviously we'll we'll get to there, but you always see kind of actors going from front of the camera and love, you know, absolutely gasping to get behind the camera. Is that a similar th- feeling for you? Do you know what? It's really interesting because there's pros and cons to both situations. So I actually started my career in radio behind the scenes as a freelance producer, assistant producer, um, and then kind of climb the ranks. And so I've seen both sides being a presenter and being behind the scenes. I think when you're behind the scenes, you have a lot more control over things like you are essentially putting together the you're you're putting together the structure of what a presenter is actually going to deliver at the end of the day and you have a lot more creative input you can be part of decision making and uh, working out what's going to be on today's news agenda or what songs you're going to play or what features you're going to do and your job as a presenter is to sell that whatever that content is in the most convincing way possible so i i enjoy both uh, I'm a little bit scared, I'll be honest with you, Ricky, I'm a little bit scared at this point because I'm giving up all control that mm. I had behind the scenes to go full-fledged as just a presenter, as just being the, the face of, of the show. Uh, so that's a little bit of a scary prospect. But yeah, you know, I enjoy both very much. I, I'm guessing then you'll be probably cautious of that relationship bet- between presenter and producer or the team behind there. 
and almost try to allow them the space of the creativity point of view as well. Otherwise, you could be the what I would say, kind of the uh, the parent, you know, always teaching the kids, and you're never letting the kid make their own mistakes yeah, or, yeah. or or development. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't want to add to your pressure. I'm just no, I'm no, just... that's okay because you know, I I think back to when I started in radio, and I think back to the fact that. When I was a producer or an assistant producer, actually, when I was an assistant producer, I think I was at my creative best. I think if you are in the right uh, broadcasting environment, if you have the right presenter, you have the right producer, you have the right editor, you have a, a, a very safe, secure setup to be able to thrive in, then I think you can be your creative best. You mm. want people around you who aren't going to shoot your ideas down, where mm. no idea is a bad idea, where you, you can be ambitious, you can think outside of the box. And I want my producers and my team to be able to do that just the way I was able to do that a few years back. So um, I'm, I'm not cautious. I wouldn't say I'm cautious of that presenter-producer um, relationship. It is a very, it's a very interesting relationship because you both have very distinct responsibilities in that and yet you you want to work together you know you, you want to fuse together and make the best of each other's ideas it's like two religions in one house of god yeah 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 because you know as a presenter you're not thinking about uh the technicals of things you're not thinking about the logistics of how you're going to execute something you're just thinking of uh fun ideas and really your team are there to help enable you bring those ideas to life or tell you, look, this isn't going to work because of X, Y, Z reasons. Let's scale it back a little bit or let's come at it from a different angle. And so there's always a risk that you could be at loggerheads with your producer because you'd be like, well, I want to do this. Why won't you let me do this? But actually you have to trust their instinct as program makers, as professionals, that there's there's a reason they're saying what they're saying as well. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm just coming at it from uh, things that I've uh, I've experienced over the radio when uh, listening to like Chris Moore's, for example, where the production team actually kind of had were at loggerheads with with himself, Comedy Dave and Chris Moore's. Yeah. Um, and the product, the producers and the production team were allowed to have off days because they're not the face. Yeah. But the presenter, no matter what kind of difficulty they're go going for, they still have to be 100 miles per hour uh, smiley face. How, like, is that something that you're, that you kind of think about that, you know, you're not allowed to have an off day because you're, you're responsible for all your listeners in being in a the best mood possible? Yeah. You know, uh, Ricky, it's, it's so interesting. Like, the, the fact that we're having this conversation right mm. now in this period before I start this new job, these are all ideas that have been going mm. through or thoughts that have been going through my mind because you're right. As a presenter, you are paid to be in a good mood all the time. Like you can't you can't have an off day because if you have an off day, why would anybody want to listen to you on the radio? Right. They're going to switch that off. People who somebody who's already having a bad day and is tuning into the radio for a little bit of escapism. If I, as a presenter, I'm also in a bad mood. What is the point of them tuning in? So I think what I see radio as is I see it as the most authentic form of performance. Like you are performing on the radio when that microphone goes up, you are putting your best foot forward. You are making sure that you are entertaining, you are positive, you are, you know, glasses half full, you you are that ever optimist on the radio. 
and yet you're being authentic at the same time. You're staying true to who you are at the mm. same time. You're not lying. You, you know, the, everything that you, everything that I talk about on the radio is an authentic extension of my personality. But yes, am I aware that I have to deliver it in a manner that will make people happy? Yes, definitely. And I think that is a a hard balance to strike. And uh, it's, I mean, there's some presenters who do it very, very well. And there's some presenters who actually play up to their bad days, right? Like Chris Moores is a good example. When he was in a bad mood, you'd know about it on the radio, but they'd make something out of it. They'd make some sort of feature out of it or some sort of sketch out of it. Um, so <clears throat> there are presenters who do that as well. I I'm not sure... I'm not sure if that's my style, but they're, mm. you know, they're very successful at doing that. Yeah, I, I was just trying to envisage myself, you know, as you just mentioned, Chris Smalls and like how they play the characters. Like, yeah, I always get it when I, I do two versions of this podcast. I do the normal podcast and then sometimes if a guest let, let, let me down or anything like that, I do like a jump off playlist yeah. where it's just me into a camera. And the amount of phone calls that I get after that is like, are you okay? Is everything right? Because all I'm doing is constantly moaning. It's just yeah. like, that's the persona. That's the venting kind of space. But I think that's important though, because when you've got somebody to kind of bounce off, it really makes the the whole kind of the, the vibe of the show really good. And so having those, having that kind of choice of people is very important. Yeah. But again, that's another thing that's changed, right? Because I think... Um... Like, so you're talking about Chris Moore's when he was on Radio 1, aren't you? So we're talking here like over 10 years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I think I think people's listening has changed since then oh, as yeah. well. So I was going to get to this as well, but it's good that you raise it now. Yeah, because I think 10 years ago, when you had personalities like Chris Moore's on Radio 1, um, or, or, you know, even more recently than then, there is an expectation that radio presenters are performative, that they are positive, that they are all of the all inclusive, all those things. But if you are being authentic to yourself, then you are going to moan about certain things. There are things that are going to upset you. There are things that are going to get on your nerves. And I think being a radio presenter, one of the arts of being a radio presenter is being able to convey those things as well without being a switch off moment, without forcing a listener to be like, oh man, all this guy does is moan, you know, or all this guy does is complain and switch over to another radio station. So I think you can have those moments where you're saying things that you're, you know, that are not making you happy, but it's how you do them, how you kind of, and how you come back to the positivity as well. Yeah. I mean, I th I think probably that was the kind of launch of talk sport in my journey where it was like, I didn't hear any ads and it was literally just people like, where, you know, where you're, I think if you're in a position where you're shouting at the radio presenter with a different view, you've done your job in some yeah. way because there's that engagement that they're more likely to pick up the phone and text in or or, make, or just say something because you you know you've captured them at that same at that at that same same bit. I also think there's a bit of a risk if everything's too happy, nicey Disneyland kind of effect as well. And I think getting that, I think the um, skill of having different debates and especially with the kind of shows that you've been on and the kind of work where you've been in. So your work experience when you first got into BBC and then you've actually progressed up the ladder in, you know, in an old traditional old fashioned kind of way, like you haven't got in there because you're, you know, you know, someone who's a music person and they put pressure on, a, a you know on management or something like that or there's bias and you know getting in there I think you kind of you've done it I think you've got more, I, I always find that you've actually got more ear to the ground of your audience than more than a lot of a lot of presenters in that way 
Um, because you can know people personally as well. You think, hang on, you're not like this at all. It's just it's pure fake. It's not authentic. Um, authentic. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's so. I I work for the Asian network, and so my audience is predominantly a South Asian audience, and yeah. I have lived and breathed and consumed this world since I was a child. Like this South Asian entertainment industry, the British Asian scene, I've consumed this since I was a kid. I remember, you know, getting my first iPod and just filling it with with Juggy D and Jay Sean and Raghav and all that good music that was coming out in the mid 2000s. And I remember living in an area in Northamptonshire where I couldn't share my love of those things openly because there wasn't enough of a community. And what the Asian Network did for me was create or provide a, a safe space where I all of a sudden started hearing presenters talking about the music that I cared about in with as much passion as I cared about it. Mm. And so even now when I'm on the radio and I'm talking about certain songs or certain movies or certain things going on, I know that there will be somebody listening in quite a rural area with not many South Asian people there and they will feel a sense of connection to what I'm talking about. And so for me, it is really important to stay authentic and to stay true to what I like and what I'm interested in and hope that I can be that safe space for another person like the Asian network was for me as a teenager. That's really what I hope for. I mean, you just touched on it, you know, your your early part of your life in terms of, I mean, how difficult, it sounds like it, it was a difficult balance, really, of, um, I don't know, probably, um, I'm guessing that it was difficult that you weren't that many kind of South Asian families in your area there. And what was a, what was a young Haroon like dealing with that? So, it, yeah, so for me... <laughs> It was weird because I went from living in West London. So I was I was born and raised in West London, in um, Hayes, in West Drayton, very Asian area. Well, West Drayton, not so much, but Hayes, very Asian area, literally on the on the border of Southall. And so up until I was like. 11, my world was quite South Asian, you know, friends at school were South Asian. Um, my family, my extended family was all there you know, you, you go on to South or Broadway, you wouldn't know that there's a world outside of this where there aren't brown people. And so uh, when my family moved to Northamptonshire, when I started secondary school, that was a bit of a culture shock. Like going into an area where there weren't Asian people was a bit of a culture shock. Um, and so for me, I it definitely created some sort of, I guess, identity crisis within myself because I couldn't relate to the people around me. I was, I, and there was like a small South Asian community there, but they'd already adapted to the balance, you could say, that was required in that area, right? They had, there was, there was a very kind of Asian part of the town centre. There was, um, in the in the kind of school playground, there was a group of Asian kids in one corner, but but I didn't have anything in common with them either. So it was, a, it was a bit of a strange kind of. Um, set up and so I kind of found my identity through entertainment like I said through films music um pop culture that made me feel connected to where I'd initially grown up in West London or a part of my culture that I I was missing you know I remember uh when I first started getting pocket money when I was like 12 13 we would come down to 
um, West London pretty much every weekend because we had family here. But I just go to South of Broadway and buy like Bollywood CDs or British Asian CDs. And that's all I'd want to do because during the week that would almost keep me going with a connection of 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 my culture. Um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but that was kind of a little insight into my upbringing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's quite similar when you when you see uh, people going in towards the arts, but it's, um, when you have, it's, you know, people, guess when I have from that background of where they got their learning from, it was this, a sense of not fitting in and trying to fit in and trying to work out and st- having that relationship with their heritage and how they got that really kind of defines their way of where they are later on in life in terms of persistence of you know the people have been shipping over cds or albums when especially for kind of like music producers and stuff um and it really kind of demonstrates a lot for people in terms of where they get their preferences and their biases or anything like that when did you kind of establish an early point that you know let's say bollywood was the the particular bit for you do you know so it's interesting because i don't think bollywood has ever been the only area that I'm interested in mm, but it's what you're known for <laughs> it, yeah it's what I'm known for but like I remember um when I was younger I used to consume a lot of pop music or R&B music in the same manner that I was consuming Bollywood as well um I used to have like 50 cent CDs Justin Timberlake CDs uh Timberland like I used to be consuming mainstream pop music as much as I was consuming South Asian music but obviously then I made a career in 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 out of this so that's a little bit different um but I always knew that I was I always knew that I appreciated Bollywood from a young age because it was encouraged in my home as well like you know my mum and dad used to have cassettes and my dad used to have vinyls and you know we used to have cds of, of Bollywood soundtracks so I always knew it was something that I was inclined towards like my earliest memory in life is going to watch Hamaki Ekon in a cinema so I I always knew that it was you know I love the kind of larger than life scale of it I love like the fantasy of it I love um, the song and dance of it Uh, it's everything that's so unrealistic and it you know it just is is a is exactly what it what it claims to be which is escapism for the audience right and I, I mean I say this a lot now and I joke about it about how it's cold and wet and rainy in the UK but maybe that's part of the reason I love Bollywood so much is because it is a million miles away from our reality yeah, and even even when it's they do the snow scenes, it's always hot there. It's always blue sky <laughs> in it, you know. What I mean? But like they don't feel cold, do they? When they have snow scenes, they don't feel cold. They're running around in like saris and shorts and t-shirts. They don't feel it. I, I think what eases their pain is sometimes their bank balance when, when, <laughs> they, when, when they do it. But it's interesting about the word escapism that you you know we've mentioned it a few times, and then that you know you're buying the music to kind of get through the week. That was yeah. your escapism again. And then you, it's almost epitomized by Bollywood in, in, in some way. Um, so, you know, how did you know that the radio or the arts in that way was going to be your 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 future? You know, I didn't. I actually wanted to be a film director. So when I was a teenager, I think I I think my initial thought was that I wanted to be a film director. And so I pursued subjects at school that were going to help me with that. So I did media studies, GCSE. I did. Um, I think I did, yeah, film or media A-level. I actually can't remember now. I think I did film A-level, if I'm not wrong, um, and and drama A-level. And I did these subjects because I thought it would, it would help me in a career in cinema in some form. And then 
I'd already started listening to the Asian network by that point. Again, I stumbled across the Asian network. It wasn't something that I actively like seeked out. I remember just turning the radio on in the car at one point and hearing Asian music. And then that just became a frequency that stayed on. Was it 1458 or 837? 837 yeah, yeah. is what it was. Because <laughs> um, Northamptonshire is in that really interesting place. 1458 is like a cross between Sunrise Radio and BBC Asian Network in the Midlands. So, yeah, yeah. So if ever you're going down, if ever you were traveling down to London, yeah, we'd always get to we were here uh, Asia. And then Susie went to like turn it off. <laughs> Forget that. We don't want to. We used to put on the uh, five live for the football or something. Uh, right. yeah. yeah. So yeah, eight three seven was the frequency. Um, but essentially, I. I, I was on a media study school trip when I was 16 and um, it was to the BBC television centre in White City. And like I said, I already started listening to the Asian network. And when I was in the lobby of the BBC there with my school group, one thing I never lacked was confidence. So when I was there in this lobby uh, with my school tour group, I spotted a presenter that I recognised from the Asian network. Now, the truth is I didn't know their actual name. I knew they were either called Raj or called Pablo, and I didn't know which one it was. <laughs> but I, I knew that I had listened to their show, and I knew that I would recognise their voice. So I just shouted out, and I think we were all on a mission on this school trip to try, try and spot somebody that we we yeah. had, you, you know, knew. So um, I just shouted out, Raj, Pablo, and uh, this man responded, and it happened to be Raj. And I think I just went into like autopilot mode and was like, oh, I love your show. I love Bollywood. Uh, you know, I love watching movies, et cetera, et cetera. And I think to get me off his back at that time, he just said, you should come on and review a movie for us. I, I didn't think he actually meant it, but he did. Yeah. Like he he very kindly after that uh, went and spoke to his producer and gave them my number. And, you know, a few days later, I did get a call saying, oh, we know you met Raj. Would you like to come in and review a movie? Now, reviewing a movie at that time was just it was just a it was like on a volunteering basis. Like it was just for fun. It wasn't anything regular. They used to get different people in every week. Um, But me being me, once I got in, I kind of just started talking to the producer and was like, is, are there any work experience opportunities? Is there any internship opportunities? I, I just kind of, I wanted to explore more of this, I guess. I think that's a really good good um, example to give, especially to kind of younger, the younger general people, kids mainly of setting that example of, you know, once you've kind of taken that chunk and you get your foot in the door, it's about the persistence, it's about consistency, yeah. that even if you're doing it, that you're showcasing your skills on, on um you know as much as you can in order to i think visual visualization being a more less visualization but a strategy of trying to get to where you are and like you know your determination of like okay we can't get rid of this kid anyway but okay let's have a look at what he's doing is it is it good is it is it is it actually professional is it is it from a uh is there real skill in what, what what he's actually reviewing um and then so like from that you you you've progressed it through but what made you different to some of the other people who were doing it what do you think apart from being um annoying or whatever you know i'm just giving an example there i don't mean that but (laughs) what made you i probably was to be honest but but what made you what made you different to everybody else then um 
I think it wasn't just, I wasn't asking for these opportunities for the glory of being in the BBC or being connected to Bollywood or any of that. I genuinely was passionate about this. Like up until that point, all my GCSE media studies coursework had been about Bollywood. I'd written essays on, I remember around that time, Wake Up Sid had released starring Rambir Kapoor. I remember writing a whole essay on that for one of my media studies courseworks. I remember uh, Shil Pachetti had just won Big Brother. I remember like creating like a whole... Uh, it was uh, the racism around then as well, wasn't it? It, so. was, it was around that time, yeah. But I remember like my me media studies GCSE coursework being like some reality show that I was pitching starring Shil Pachetti. The point is, this was my world. I was consumed by it. I was passionate about it. I knew it instinctively. And I, I, it kind of just was all up in my head anyway, right? So when I was coming in and doing these film reviews, which started off as being like once every couple of months for free with no kind of payment, I uh, would just kind of show off my knowledge, you could say, or show off my yeah. enthusiasm. And um, also, you know, like now it's a little bit different. I think post COVID, everyone's become a lot lazier and actually going out and doing things and meeting people. But back then I was getting my, or, you know, my dad or my mum were very kindly driving me down to London to come and do this with no money involved at all, just for the pure passion of it. And um, that's like, that's quite a task after, that's after nothing. doing it a couple of times. So for them to carry on doing that, um, I think even the producers on the show were like, oh, this guy does genuinely really want to do this or does really want to explore this. And even at that time, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think in the back of my head, I still wanted to be um, a film director. I was applying to university at that time as well to do English and film studies courses. So um, I just wanted to explore what would happen if I continued uh, pursuing this. And you went to Westminster, right? Is that no, what you... I, I went to Queen Mary. Queen Mary's, yeah, yeah. yeah. And is that what you studied in eventually? or? Yeah, so I did English and film eventually. But uh, look, university was the best time of my life. Genuinely the best time of my life. Uh, made the best friends there. Uh, had a great time. But I think the actual academics of university was the thing I focused on least because, because I'd, already, I'd already started working at the BBC by that time. I was already working at the Asian Network. I was actually working at the Asian Network as a freelancer before I started uni. So by the time I actually started uni, I was kind of fitting that around working at the same time, which is not yeah. good. I don't advise that. I, I, I advise people focus on university and then <laughs> then work alongside that. So 16, 17, kind of volunteering, working, yeah. like doing, doing all that and then getting your foot in the door. So when I was um, 17 is when I first got like a proper opportunity to work, which was essentially the editor of that show at the time who who actually works at the Asian Network now as well his name's Zab he called me down to London for a meeting and was like look you've been pursuing this for a while now you come down and do regular film reviews you've sent me your CV what do you want and I was a little bit taken aback because I was like well I don't actually know what I want I just want to see what I can do with this opportunity and I want to work on this show in some form and I love Bollywood etc etc and he was like well then prove it by coming down on a weekly basis and doing some paid work for us and going to cinemas around London and gathering people's film reviews 
uh, when they've watched movies, essentially what are known as Vox Pops. Go and get Vox Pops of people who have uh, watched film releases, edit them together, we'll play them out on the radio. That's a good starting point. And also one of the biggest skills that you can learn when it comes to radio production. Started doing that regularly. I think at that point, somebody went off sick on the team and they were like, oh, do you actually want to come and work on the production of the team instead of production of the show instead? So that that's how it kind of happened. It all kind of like followed step by step, I would say. You know, when you're going into kind of an environment in the BBC, like you mentioned Raj and Pablo, I think they were two big characters who were from... And I always used to know it because I used to sign off to another program that I used to listen. I don't know whether the Bungalows, like the Bungalows. Dips, dips is showing. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. I used to catch kind of the segue, you know, over that yeah. bit. Like, you've got a lot of big characters who were involved in, in, in the, at the at radio at that time. You're in a building full of characters in the whole BBC and stuff. Yeah. How did you kind of find your place in there and dealing with some of the personalities? Especially at a young age, because you would have been one of the youngest there, right? Yeah, or... yeah. Um, I think I was the youngest there. How did I adapt to uh, working with these big personalities? The truth is, I didn't know any better. Like, I didn't know any better. This was my first kind of real professional working environment. I, whatever I was seeing, whatever behavior of presenters I was seeing, I was accepting as the norm of being how presenters behave or how things are done or how this world works and you know now as as um, a more mature adult I probably have different opinions on that but at the time I accepted and embraced it for what it was because I was so grateful for the opportunity of being in this building I was willing to do everything I was willing to make cups of tea I was willing to go and buy breakfast for the presenters I was willing to do wh whatever it required for me to prove that I deserve to be there is what I was willing to do. Now, I think that um, young interns or or people on work placements are so much luckier because the infrastructure is so much better. There is a much tighter uh, structure or plan of what you will do if you come in at that beginner entry level. Uh, you know, you're not make, you're not make, you're not doing tea runs anymore. You know, you're not going to buy uh, breakfast for the for the presenters. Those things don't exist now me as a presenter now i would not dream of asking my team to do those things for me but that's because the culture has changed a lot in those years as well um so when you say how did i kind of adapt to that environment with these big personalities i was just this young kid who was like wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and just taking it all in and absorbing it all and seeing these personalities, you know, at that time, it was, uh, we used to be in a building called Yolding House and Radio One and One Extra also used to broadcast from that building. So you used to have like uh, Vernon Kay on a Saturday morning at the same time as Raj and Pablo's show. And they used to have all these big guests in. I remember like the Saturdays being in on one show or JLS being in on one show, like very early on in my career. So all I'm doing is just absorbing what's going on. I, I wouldn't get like, any work done. If I saw some of the, I'd be like, just like this. Constantly. Yeah, yeah. It really, it it really was like a, it was a wild experience. But everybody, once you're um in the doors of the building, I don't think there's really a hierarchy that exists inside. Like every presenter was quite approachable. You could have a conversation with people. You could introduce yourselves. I never felt like I, you know, um, I couldn't speak to someone in that environment. So, yeah. um, no, it was it was a great experience. I, I 
I had a very brief stint on radio when I used to be as a um, more of a kind of CD selector when I used to work on Excel during uh, Radio Excel when I used to do um, uh, when I was at university I was able to kind of plug some gigs and I used to get free tickets because of it oh nice yeah. <laughs> and uh, it, there was a couple of things that always came out it was like all the biggest star, Bangladesh stars that I would like be um, that I would see I would like if people actually knew these people they're horrible people <laughs> And, you know, like, so, you know, never meet some of your heroes. Some of them are absolutely great. Um, but I was never a massive Bollywood fan. So I remember meeting Shah Rukh Khan once and uh, wow. and, uh, and Ashwarya, right? I think it was just around the times of Mega Mella. Right. And, you know, I, it, to me, it, it wasn't a huge, it, like, to me, it wasn't like, I wasn't kind of starstruck at that bit. I was more like, oh, how you doing? And I, because I was kind of acting normal, I think they kind of they they draw to you a little bit more. Where yeah. you, whereas if somebody was kind of starstruck, they're trying like, oh, that's great at that, but like you're freaking me out. I need to kind of move in. Yeah. And but that kind of etiquette. Who taught you that? Because that's what I think is missing. Do you get? Do you get what I'm saying? Or am that's I... such a great question. Um, okay, so when I was seventeen, eighteen. Um, I was definitely starstruck. To some extent, I was definitely starstruck. And I remember asking for this opportunity to come in and be the the uh, runner on a day where Karina Kapoor was coming into the studio. She was promoting a film called We Are Family. I think it was 2009 was the year. And um, I was interning at the time, but I wasn't supposed to be in the building on a Sunday. I think it was a Sunday. I can't remember. Or Monday. Monday. Um, I wasn't supposed to be in the building. Monday and Tuesday were supposed to be my days off. But I remember like literally begging for, can I come in and can I be a runner on this day? Because I want to meet Karina Kapoor. And it was great. Like, it was great to see a celebrity up close and personal like that. And I guess I wanted to be their friend, right? Because I've dreamt <laughs> of meeting these people. I've, I've I've watched them on screen. And I must have come on like too much like a fanboy at that point and too starstruck because... Um, she gave me no time at all. Like she was lovely, like really, really nice. Um, no complaints. She wasn't rude or she wasn't, there was nothing bad, but she also didn't want to engage in a lot of conversation. And I, and in my head, I fast forward to January, 2020, where I'm much more established in my profession. And I go to her house in Mumbai and I'm acting way more professional. Like I'm acting way more calm. I, I'm not looking to engage in casual banter because I'm there doing my job as an interviewer. She's there doing her job as a as a as a, a celebrity to be interviewed. And yet she was so much more engaging in conversation. And I think that was all in my behavior. Like the fact that I wasn't desperate to to uh engage in friendly banter. I wasn't coming across as starstruck. I think those that etiquette you learn over time in the job. I think the more relaxed you become in the job, uh, the easier those relationships become with these celebrities, the more, you, you know, like now at this point, I am not phased at all by doing a celebrity interview. I can't remember the last time I did an interview where I was phased by the person that I was going to speak to, but that has come through many, many years of of doing this and and experiencing good and bad interviews and good and bad celebrities to realize essentially this is just a job it is just a job like 
interviewing famous people. They might be famous, but at the end of the day, they are they are just as messed up as anybody else. That, that's that's the truth of it. Is it is it, yeah? So you know that that teaching of that etiquette, I think, needs to be expressed a little bit more. <laughs> tell know? me, tell me more. Tell me what you mean. Tell me what you mean. So uh, what I think. So the only uh, I uh, this like I said, I'm a massive Jazzy B fan, right? Yeah. So the first time I was working at a wedding, I was doing photography at a wedding, um, just during u- uni, and the first time I ever saw Jazzy B perform was the only time I stopped still and watched the performer, and I was like, I missed the whole wedding. I got bollocking after, and I was like, I'm amazed. So when the first time I kind of met him, I was like holy because i think people forget how big these people were yeah. like you know at their peak like they were massive and um and he was like stopping traffic to launch parties on Saw road and all these kind of things and so i met him a couple, I, I met i had him at my wedding you oh, know, wow. I, and you know and I, it was a it was a similar kind of thing from and then i eased off and then i was kind of involved in another kind of musical project with him and I felt like I, I, you know, I was speaking to quite, I spoke to quite a lot of celebs and stuff for that bit, but he was just the one that I always just fell down. At. Like, I was like, I'm all right with everybody. And then sometimes around, I'm like, I feel back like that kid again. And um, I'm almost short circuit that out now. Cause like, um, I think I've just got to that much, you know, when you become, I, I think, when you become a parent and things and you're trying to teach those things and that you, you, you spot your own mistakes of what you've done. So acting like the fanboy or, you know, going a bit over the top and having that, what I see is other people who, who don't care as much as of him, like I do. You just see that they've got a better relationship because they're not, they're not a fanboy. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. I think, you know, it comes with time, like I said. But yeah, also yeah, yeah, it yeah. comes with it comes with a, a lot of um, learn of like knowing your worth. Like, what are you bringing to this dynamic? Yeah, why yeah, have yeah. Why have you, as an individual, been allowed into that close proximity with this famous person? You are providing a service to them. Like for me, I I think of it as a very transactional relationship mm. now. So I know that these celebrities they need platforms to promote themselves and get out to potential audiences, right? I know that I am good at my job and I will give them a fair chance at expressing themselves on my platform. And so I don't feel, um, I feel grateful that they come to me, but I don't feel indebted to them for coming to me. I don't feel like, oh, like, thank God you've come to me instead of somebody else. Because deep down, I also know that they need the platform and they need the kind of fairness of that platform as well. And that that's kind of how I see it now. So you, you and you reach a point where if you feel like those celebrities aren't giving you the respect that you deserve, you automatically uh, feel less starstruck by them anyway. You know, mm. like it, it, it's just kind of a, an ever evolving relationship, I think. Um yeah yeah i mean that that's the way i i treat it now i treat it as quite a transactional relationship you want to promote something so you're coming to me i'll do a fair job of giving you that platform yeah let's go but i mean whenever i spent time with him being around his pretty like he's fantastic fantastic he, he settles you down and you know you, you you're fine and you, you you get out of that initial stage i think what i experienced at radio and seeing some other people was how they kind of manipulated that 
and uh, and and that vulnerability of being manipulated where somebody's got your best interest and how they kind of take advantage of i think that was the biggest kind of takeaway from it is there is there a um still now i, I know what you've just said and i, I and i know that's 100% genuine and i agree because i feel it you know fr- from that way as well is there still so an art like a, a an actor or actress that you still think you still feel like a kid again when they're in there and you have to kind of check yourself out i, I think um Shah Rukh khan will always be that kind of figure for me because he was my childhood hero however having said that i remember the first time meeting sharuk properly um face to face was in 2011 i think it was 2011 or 2012 2012 it might have been and um i remember fanboying in that interaction you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts, so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But since then, I've met him a number of times and it's got to the point where I don't feel like that because because he's made the relationship a lot easier. Like he's uh, he is a vulnerable actor who is going through his own struggles in life, who is constantly being berated by the media, who is constantly under scrutiny. Um, He is not that kind of bulletproof hero that I thought he was as a kid and so when you realize that as an individual he is somebody who's going through his own kind of journey um it does take off the shine of that of that uh fanboy a little bit like it takes off that starstruck element a little bit i see him as somebody who i respect enormously who's always shown me respect as a journalist uh and somebody who i very much wish the best for and hope he succeeds in every manner possible but am i a, a fanboy in the same manner probably not yeah, yeah yeah i think i need we need to change that word fanboy in it yeah, yeah. we'll start that camp <laughs> just wanted to ask you like um sometimes when i do this some of the best stuff that i get um is off camera yeah <laughs> it's normally when it's ended how do you make that conscious decision where you know you've got a piece of information that they've told you off camera that you would be the biggest headlines it would do wonders for your career all these kind of things how do you make that decision of what to release and what not to 
Oh, okay. Well, if it's, I wouldn't release something if it's been said off record. If it's off record and you know we haven't started rolling properly and it's just in the rushes. But in the, in the in today's day and age, nothing's off record. You know, everyone's got smartphones. Everyone's got this. It, uh, you, okay, let's put it this way. You'll be probably one of the rare ones that wouldn't exploit that. You, we all fall well. Know, honestly, it. truthfully, I wouldn't. Truthfully, I know you wouldn't. I know that's yeah, why I said yeah. I, got, I, know, I know you're one of the rare uh, ones, but uh, you you'll see people the TMZ culture of releasing yeah. and the gossip and all that kind of stuff. But how do you make that decision? Yeah, sorry. I I I make that decision based on the fact that if I want to maintain a relationship of respect and kind of mutual respect. And I don't want to jeopardize a relationship that I have with these individuals, then I wouldn't compromise that trust because there's trust there. Like I know that when um, and you're right, there's many conversations that happen off record or, you know, when the camera's not on where um, somebody is saying something that they wouldn't say if the cameras were rolling. So they've confided in me or said something in a space of trust. I don't think it's my place to go and expose that if they're not willing to say it on record. Also, it comes it comes under the fact that I, I work for a brand where there is a level of respect and trust mm. associated as well, right? Like, I am, I'm not delusional to the fact that I have access to these celebrities because I work for an organisation like the BBC. You know, I, I completely understand that they come to me because... I'm associated with a brand or an organization that stands for a certain quality. It's that transaction, isn't it? It's that transaction. Yeah. So why would I jeopardize that? Why would I want to ruin the chances of of sitting down with that person again, where they might feel more comfortable talking about that subject in an, in an open space? You know, that's not to say that I shy away from topics. Like as a journalist, I'll talk about whatever is topical at that time. I'll ask the questions that are relevant at that time. Um, I won't though go into spaces that I don't that I think are going to cause more damage than good. Yeah, it, I, I, the only reason I bring it up because like Shah Rukh Khan, I, I'm not the biggest Bollywood fan, but I yeah. kind of f- still kind of know little bits about it um, from a more musical aspect. But with him, I mean, he's had eventful let's say 18 months. Well, his yeah. family's had a, a eventful sort of 18 months, two years. And also from an acting point of view, like this new film, I don't even know what it's called. But I know, yeah, that's it, yeah. Yeah. Um, that it's a really pivotal point in his in terms of career that he's coming back from after a, a long time. Um, and I just saw his his physique was just unbelievable, right? Yeah. Like how much he kind of signifies of where he's changed. You, we kind of grew up with him. I'm I'm ten years older than you, roughly, um, and. You, you kind of grow up with these guys and you see wh- where they are and how they're reinventing themselves and that. Do you think that they get to a position where the media kind of starts backing off, the narrative has changed from being kind of loving, where they make those conscious decisions of what to do next? Yeah, I mean, I think that the media has ruined their relationship with somebody like Shah Rukh Khan. You know, like, for example, Shah Rukh Khan hasn't done any interviews for this film, Bataan. Not a single press interview has he done for this movie. He's gone on sports show like sports shows like he was at the um, FIFA World, World Cup. Cup but yeah, yeah he, so he was there and he did a couple of other, like, I think he did um, at the Dubai. There was like a cricket ceremony in Dubai that he went to and he made an appearance there. But in terms of... Um, press interviews, interviews with journalists, he's done none. And he just tweeted the other day saying, I've got nothing to say, so I won't do any interviews. Now, this guy was the most media friendly 
actor you could think of. He would always have something to say to the press. And the reason for that is because the press has jeopardized that relationship. They've compromised that relationship. They've gone out of their way to um, slander him in many ways over the, the last couple of years on social media, through articles, through associations with his family. And so I think that at this point, celebrity culture as a whole is reevaluating their relationship with the media. They're reevaluating whether the, Amitabh Bachchan, another you know great example of somebody who refuses to do press interviews now, uh, again somebody who was very media friendly until a few years ago. So I think if the media isn't careful, they will ruin those relationships forever. You know, th th we're on we're in a very interesting place right now where mm. celebrities, to a large extent, are realizing they don't need the media as much as they used to. They have their own social media platforms with a reach of millions. Bataan is a great example of a film that has had um, a massive publicity campaign, but zero promotional campaign. Like the the stars of the film have not done any public appearances, no interviews, it, it, and yet everybody knows this film's releasing. Yeah, for me to know it, yeah, you know, I, I, I can, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's not my active channels of of kind of uh, on my timeline uh, of consumption, so. With that being said, do you fear for your kind of own access to these kind of guys? Because you you know, like you're in in certain countries, the press culture is kind of is vulture like. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the paparazzi work and stuff from there, and you can see, especially in uh, other countries, that the news cycles are twenty four seven. The little snippets, the content is king, isn't it? Right? Yeah. Where you're you're kind of swimming against the grain where you're still trying to maintain the high BBC professional standards, your own kind of ethics within there. You stand out more, but do you think because of their blanket approach that they're not doing any press that it, it can affect you? Um, it could do potentially. I'd, I mean, it's definitely a thought that has run through my mind and Bataan has been a film that has reinforced that thought in my mm. mind where I'm like, oh, is this going to be the future? Is this going to harm my prospects or my show or, or my... Um, work having said that you do get to a point where you built enough of that relationship where if you drop their publicist a message or you drop their team a message and you say look it's it's me who wants to do this interview I think that I've built enough goodwill in that industry to be able to um, still maintain those equations um, but we'll have to see you know if you ask me in a year's time it'll be I very know. interesting I, I will I, I can't you know for the follow-up one I can't yeah. wait because it'll be It'll be so different, and especially with this, this, this point, which is how the, the balance with your own style and your technique in terms of how deep do you go in asking one of the, the the questions within there? Do you compromise future, or do you, you know, even though it might be a sensible question, um, is that the kind of straw that breaks the <laughs> the camel's yeah. back for that? And also, like the role of a journalist has changed so much as well. Like earlier, as a journalist, your job was literally to ask questions that were um, the qu questions that people wanted to know, questions that were going to bring out the truth of a certain situation. And now uh, there is there is a compromise that a lot of entertainment journalists make where they won't go into certain areas, they won't ask about certain topics. Um, and part of that is because of the welfare or the, or the care of the celebrity that they're talking about, right? Like, um, I would say 10 years ago, the number of journalists asking celebrities about their relationships was far greater than it is now because celebrities themselves have set boundaries and said, 
this is an area we don't want to talk about. It's bad for our mental health to talk about this because if tomorrow that relationship fails, this will always be on record, right? So as journalists, you or certainly as entertainment journalists, you're making a more calculated risk of whether it's worth asking the question or not. Um, could this question backfire on you later down the line? Will you lose anything in your interview by not asking this question? So you are constantly kind of making those kind of, uh, I guess, assessments in your head. And so, you know, in, in terms of like um, your experience then, how do you formulate a good interview from from your from your experience okay so i think like research is imperative like i cannot stress enough how important it is to research the person that you are interviewing i have watched so many bad interviews where actually the journalist is quite talented the celebrity is a great talker but because the journalist hasn't done their research, the interview just kind of falls flat. So know who you're talking to and then know the audience that you're catering for as well. Like me doing an interview for the BBC Asian Network is very very different to me doing an interview for, um, I don't know, TMZ, for example, you mentioned earlier, right? The style, mm. the questioning, the line of questioning, the, the tone is going to be very specific to the outlet that you're providing that material for. I also think like not, I, I think um, most celebrities do interviews when they're promoting something, they're promoting a film or they're promoting a song or they're, promote, they're pr promoting something. So imagine they will have done 20 to 30 interviews promoting the same thing. And those answers are on autopilot. Like those answers are the same generic answers that they're gonna give every single journalist. So you need to come to the table with something different. You need to come with questions that are outside of the box. You need to come with something that is gonna force that celebrity to think about their answer, but also give you new material that you can run on your platform that nobody else will have. Um, and so that comes from consuming a lot of other interviews. So my tips, do your research, know the platform that you're writing for, but also watch every single other interview that's out there. Like literally watch every interviewer's techniques, their style, how they ask questions, what sorts of questions they ask, not to rip them off because that's not what you're trying to do, but to try and build an, a good evaluation yourself of what works, what doesn't, what a celebrity, what kind of questions a celebrity particularly responds well to, what they don't respond well to, um, and then find ways to innovate yourself. That that would be my kind of advice. I mean, you talked about innovation of yourself. So a Haroon that I would have seen five years ago visually would be completely different to what that one that you see now. How important is something like that to keep keep you kind of present, still be part of a subject matter of a discussion and being relevant? Do you mean physically? Physically, yeah, I think yeah, I think physically, obviously, like you're now a TikTok star, and it you know doing all your dance moves and stuff and that you know uh, from there. But like, was was that kind of a pressure that you were that you were feeling? Um, I would say it was an unsaid pressure. It was an unspoken pressure that I was was feeling. Um, nobody really ex explicitly uh, nobody really explicitly labeled it as a pressure. Uh, but I, as an individual, felt like I didn't look like the best version of myself five years ago. And I felt like that that added an extra layer of things I needed to worry about when I didn't mm. really need to worry about them. So, like, for example, this is a, 
uh, a good one. When I was doing interviews five years ago, apart from making sure that the camera and the lighting and the everything was right for the, for the interviewee, I also was really worried about how I would look on camera because I knew that I was overweight. I knew that I wasn't comfortable with the way I was looking. So I'd be paranoid about all of those things. Now I'm a lot easier in front of the camera because I know that I look like a better version of myself or what I consider to be a better version of myself. So it kind of, it take it takes off a stress. It takes off one stress from, yeah. um, from the table, I guess. It's one less thing that you have to worry about. Although my beard looks a bit crazy right now, but that's it. Hey, look, man, look, I just constantly look like I've just been, I'm not sleeping very well at the moment. So why, why aren't you sleeping well, Ricky? Let's let me interview you a little bit. Why aren't you sleeping well? So I've got these, I've got this sleep app, you know, the sleep apps that you can get. So it, yeah. it determines like I'm getting like seven hours, eight hours, like seven and a half hours or six or whatever. Right. Yeah. But my REM sleep is like 20. Okay. So that's when you're 13. in actual deep sleep. Yeah. And I can't physically do anything different to that. I'm going to the gym. I'm doing playing football. I'm a natural warrior anyway, and I think the line of work that I, I, I do in my day job is any. And but I've reduced stresses down. I'm decompressing. All these things I just cannot get my REM sleep up. I think the highest I've got in the last, say, couple of months was about fifty-two minutes. I think it was really okay. And the, what's, that, what's the average for most people? The, the recommendation is a minimum of ninety minutes. Okay. So what could be causing that? No idea. And what have you done to change the setting around when you go to sleep to kind of... Go to sleep earlier, um, much earlier. Um, Are you taking not supplements? Watching... I haven't, to be fair, I haven't taken a lot of supplements from, from it. I didn't want to build a dependency on, let's say, medication. Yeah. But if I... Um, like even like you know vitamins and all that. I haven't I haven't been doing. I've tried to keep it as natural as I can to kind of identify the issue. Yeah. Um, but it could be something that I've always had and, and didn't know anything. Didn't know anything different from it. Um, but I have no. It's like when you turn. I turn forty and I keep always going on about it. It was like a switch in the body. It's like like it automatically just the power just went down. Yeah. <laughs> you just like. So I'll go to the gym. I'm one of the. I feel the, the strongest that I've ever been. Yeah. So I'm. I'm. I'm more from that side. Um. But I just. Uh, I just need. Uh, you know, the recovery time a little bit, a bit more. So I'd like. You know, the, especially your journey around weight loss. I. I. I kind of relate to that a little bit. Um. And I get it. It's like an extra layer of stress that you don't need to do. So yeah, I feel. Yeah. I feel great. I don't even go on the scales because I know I feel great. Yeah. Um. But it's not. Um. It's not corresponding in my sleep so uh try it well i mean look who am i to give you a no no but, this is however this is however i i'm very fascinated by things like this because i also so i think when i turned 30 i had a switch of a different kind but where i realized that these are aspects of my life that i also need to prioritize and like sleep was one of them but like these are pillow mists that you get with lavender in them they're really good to like help calm you down to be in a better place to sleep I also like, I light a candle, like an hour before I'm going to sleep, I light a candle that has like, I mean, the one that I've got at the moment has got like rose oud in it, but I like like mm -hmm. calming kind of scents at that I'm time. I'm writing this down, by the way. Yeah, look, I'll show you, look, you know, you were talking about research and it, this was the research that I had for you. 
What, what uh, does it say? Sharuk School and? Early Journey. Early Journey. Nice. So so anyone from there, I'm a like I just. So you knew that I was going to talk about Sharuk? I was going to bring it up in, in terms of my own opinion around the the kind of consumption around it and how you would, um, you know, the fanboy bit about okay. how did you deal with uh, with with presence and that. But I think if I'm a betting person, I would have guessed that you would have mentioned his name in the interview. It's very interesting. Uh, okay, so I would say this pillow mist that you get. Which I, wrote, I, wrote, I wrote down candle. I'm candle. writing down yeah. pillow. But also the scent of the candle, very important. Like you need like something with lavender or chamomile or some sort of like calming, soothing scent. Um, I started taking ashwagandha as well about two hours before I go to sleep um, as a supplement. I uh, agree. What? Ashwa? Ashwagandha. Um, which is a, it's like a natural, natural herbal um, supplement. Um, I take that every night before I go to like a couple of hours before I go to sleep, it's supposed to just make you more relaxed so that by the time you do go to bed, you're in a better state to go to sleep. Um, they're the things that I'm actively doing, but even I know that I could do a lot more to improve my yeah. sleep. Like I still use my screen or my phone or watch TV before I go to sleep. Like that I shouldn't really do. Yeah, I do. Even, yeah, even if I do, I have it on the, you know, the kills the, oh, the yeah, light yeah. kind of setting yeah. stuff and that yeah, was in there. Um. Yeah, you see, you're very clever. You spun it, spun it around on me. Oh, there's one more thing, actually. I know, genuinely, I, I, I like giving off this advice. There's this thing that you get from um, Lush, the shop Lush, which is like a sleep um, balm, and it's got lavender in it, and you kind of put it on your pulse points before you go to sleep. So on your neck, on your wrist, it also helps you sleep better. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. I'm coming to the last few questions on this. So these are the more, the deeper ones. Isn't it? Okay. How do you, um, how do you balance your work, work life, private life? Um, and are you conscious of that? Because you know that you are speaking about your day-to-day -day job is of, of people's kind of private lives as well. Yeah. How do I balance it? Not as well as I could is the, mm. is the truthful answer. I think I'm a kind of like, um, I, I, I focus on one thing at a time as an individual. So when I'm focused on my job and my career, I give that my like 200%. And that's everything. I, I give my all to it. And then I feel like my uh, private life or my personal life suffers for that. However, I think COVID and the lockdown taught us all to balance that a little bit better. So now, for example, uh, you mentioned the gym. If I know I'm going to go to the gym at a certain time, unless I've got a, a really urgent meeting, I will move things around to make sure I facilitate that time for myself. If I know I've made a commitment with my friends or my family, I will make sure that I won't double book that with work commitments on the same night to give that the respect that it requires as well. Because if you don't have those other components to your life, uh, your personal life, your me time, all those things, I don't think you can be the best yeah. at your job as well. So I think my whole my whole balance around balancing work life and, and personal life has, has shifted. And when you do, when you do find that, 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 that balance within, do you feel the quality of your work gets better or do yeah. you? Yeah. Because like sometimes when you have, um, I would say sometimes I've produced some of my best stuff when I've, when I've struggled with sleep or anything like that, or I've, I've done it from because you're digging in and you're creative innovation and stuff like that. 
Um, and where sometimes if you have a little bit too much, I'm really much more groggy. Do you take that in consideration or is it just a, a, not a thing for you? I mean, it, it, it happens. Like certainly when I um, have done, so I've done quite a lot of like international trips for work to yeah. Mumbai, to Dubai, to Pakistan. And when you're on those trips, you barely get any sleep. Like you sleep three to four hours a night at most. And then you're back in the morning doing interviews again, back to back. And you ride on the adrenaline of it. You really do. Like you're riding on the kind of, your excitement of what's going on and those interviews turn out good as well however mm. having said that i do think there's a lot of value in being kind of well slept or you know being well rested before doing an interview having that extra time to prepare i think there's a lot of value in that um having said that do i think my work is better for giving time to my personal life yes i do because i think it, you can hear on radio when somebody is burnt out or when they're out of energy or they're exhausted i think it comes through mm. very easily through your voice so if i don't allow myself time to uh, kind of replenish my myself or or to kind of um rest i, I think it, it does affect my work on the radio for sure okay so uh that kind of coming to a close in a, in a second but this is kind of the last one before i kind of hand it over to yourself in one way don't panic um in in your your line of it you've experienced it for probably coming up to 15 years i would say yeah a little what? bit less but yeah i'm not that old but yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm counting your school trip so yeah. that, that's fine yeah then maybe yeah yeah so would you what do you fear what are your fears for the future of kind of radio and what's your kind of shining lights to think that it's it's going to be okay. The reason why I say it's going to be okay is because I'm only going off from my immediate circle and I'm conscious I'm not the demographic of as well. But the, you know, I go, I listen, when I'm in a car, I listen to a, 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 a YouTube video, yeah. kind of like listening to clips and doing stuff um, or po or podcasts. Very rarely do I kind of actually put on, on a radio station that do you, you know, how do, what's your thoughts on that? So, I think it is a very real worry for for everybody who works in the radio industry about the relevance of radio in 10 or 20 years time. However, I think that radio provides everybody with a sense of community that they don't get elsewhere. I think that even now, the reason why live television viewing works is because people feel like they are tuned into something at the same time and everybody's watching something collectively. And in the same way, I think radio provides you that security of knowing that you're not alone. Like there are other people out there who are listening or consuming something at the same time as you. So actually the concern for me as a, as a broadcaster, as a presenter, is creating that community, creating that environment where people feel like they are represented, like they are included, like they are, like they can relate to what I'm talking about at the same time um for me the kind of main priority is being relevant with what i'm talking about on the radio being relevant with what i'm playing on the radio as well i don't want somebody to feel like i'm playing music that is not of their taste or or you know or they could make a better spot uh spotify playlist themselves i don't want them to to feel that way i want them to feel like they are part of a collective journey um, and I think that is going to be the, the kind of main mission for most people in radio over the next 10, 15 years. Okay, thank you for that. <laughs> That's, that uh, it, it's something that, re you know, I, I'm just conscious of my own. What What do you think? I'm, cu I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. I think radio is going to die. 
Oh, okay. Thanks a lot, man. So you're yeah. saying I'm going to be out of a job in a few years? No, I don't. I know because I can see, I can see you're very what you do and what your skill is very transferable. I think, and you're able to have a conversation. I think what I see across radio stations is that um, I think the art of conversation has died. So they'll you have a two three minute sort of oh yeah I watched TV last night and it's it's like it's so pre planned it's like wrestling it's not you know it's just, it's so scripted and then the get out of jail card is to play a song or let's play two because I can't be bothered to 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 do any talking I think there's a reason why podcasts are doing so well is because it's the art of conversation it's a bit like Nihal's book actually where it's actually learning that skill again having space to disagree or, li or listen to ad-free kind of uh, narrative and you're able to have a deeper discussion with and I think people that's why motivational things are working this is why everything is like that it's just telling you this is this is what happens however I was at a PRS um, AGM last year and they were talking about actually uh, I think it was actually the BBC direct, the controller director, I forgot what her name was. And and she was talking about actually radio figures are actually gone up. Yeah. So uh, the data might be saying one thing, but my own personal kind of preference is, is, is different. Now, whether there's a lag from that because of COVID, I don't know. I think we'll know that answer naturally within two to three years. But if you look at revenues and, and people and stars and personalities will go where the money is podcasting and everything is is kind of the 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 future but yeah i mean that's that's my personal personal thought of it i think what does worry me is about those songs and things that people are producing are getting shorter i think people's attention Super spans short. in in content are like a minute or yeah. two minute songs because they're making they're making content not for the listener they're making content for an algorithm and I think that relationship, and and therefore you become the, against the grain when you don't take take that in, consider, in consideration. The reason why Joe Rogan and all these guys, in my opinion, did well was because they didn't conform to what was being already out there. They just did a space and like I'm just going to talk, and whoever likes it likes it. Yeah. And um, there is a bit of freedom in that. Like I don't. This is um I do this on my own agenda. I don't need to ask any permission. I do this and it's just because I'm intrigued and I want to know it's just, and if people enjoy it and they follow, follow it and stuff, well, hopefully they enjoy it as well at the same time, but I'm not doing it for them. I'm doing it for like who I want to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where I think if you've got a kind of a pain audience, that pressure of trying to continuously please them and an algorithm is so difficult and it's going to get harder. And as you go forward. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you always have people who say, Oh, you, you, don't talk enough on the radio, but then there's a lot of people who say you talk too much on the radio. As well. Oh like, yeah, there's yeah, more yeah, people, yeah, yeah. There's more people who say you talk too much on the radio. You know, uh, talk less, play more music. So I think it is very hard to to really find the right balance. I think yeah. it's something that radio stations across the world are struggling with is trying to find that balance mm. right now. Uh, yeah. But thanks for telling me I'm going to be out of a job in two, three years. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I, I actually genuinely don't think so because, like, uh, and this is a bit of a guilty pleasure out of this bit. Was when I'm on my when I'm on TikTok, I've actually yeah. started. I've become an addict on that now. I will fully admit. Um, I always get drawn to some of the Bollywood stuff. So there's a guy on there who gets a tape. Yeah, goes, I, mean, I don't know. 
I don't know what his name is, whatever. Yeah. He gets a tape. Someone said this one. Dobby word, I think. It yeah, is. then he gets it out and he reads the inlay and he it's goes, this was, this was the backstory of it all. And then he gets his Bush bloody tape player, presses yeah. play, and then you listen to it. So, so I, I, you know, I just fall into the kind of the narrative, the story behind it, not necessarily the music, but the story behind it. And a lot of your kind of like the Bollywood review, they are there's stories. It's like yeah. people can know about a film but not actually watch it like i've got no you know, i wouldn't watch Pata- like it's just not on my radar but i'm interested in the dynamics behind it and the story so therefore you always have content i think there's other people that wouldn't and you probably be bigger exposure because you know because it because they'll be tuning into your personality wherever you wherever you go i think that where that didn't happen as much was with chris moyles where where he was at Radio One, and that that following didn't necessarily transfer over to kind of serious of where or, or where he I don't know where he's at actually, um, and I think that was a bit bit of a bit of a risk. So I ain't saying that you are, but if you are, you're in a you're probably one of the more fortunate ones. Yeah, I mean the only thing is though, there's no platforms in the UK that provide that Bollywood audience with- make your own. Make it, yeah, very true. You know what? What you're doing is inspiring in many, many ways. You know, you've made your own platform, and I think that you've grown that community. I think the reason you can be yourself and ask whatever you want and not have to have an agenda is because you are doing it yourself. And I think that's a great place to be. I in. would say I'm in the same position as you when you were 16, 17, is where I've got just a, a passion for podcasts, I like it, yeah, and I listen to people. I'm very honest in 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 that. And I don't have an agenda with it. And it's just like, I, I, I did it during COVID. I said, oh, I'm going to just get it out there. And it's almost, it's kind of a legacy. Because like, sometimes if I can't speak to my kids, at least they'll know that, oh, there's a there's a digital <laughs> legacy of this guy. <laughs> this is what he thought about this. This is what he thought about. Anyway, that's getting too deep. Last question. So this is the bandwagon. So th- it's a play on on my surname. Um, and it's an opportunity to, for the guest to either jump on a bandwagon or jump off a bandwagon. Or if not, is there anything that they want to get off their chest? This is the safe space for the for you to kind of share. Nice. Okay, so I, I want to jump on the bandwagon. I'm trying to get on the bandwagon already, but I want to jump on it completely. And you've already mentioned it. And it is TikTok. Because yeah. so I I find it fascinating, right? Because I have grown up with social media i'm part of this generation that has uh, that has been part of the innovation of 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 social media right from high five to myspace to twitter to instagram to now tiktok and i have adapted to every single one of those platforms with a lot of ease and i find tiktok to be the one that i struggle understanding the most i love it i'm addicted to it i use it every day i i um reshare my content from my show on there as well but actually creating original content for for tiktok is a is a real art and i don't know i don't understand the algorithm well enough to know what i need to create i don't know if you feel this way as well but it's so hard to know what works and what won't on tiktok mm. i'm really like la- i'm not lazy because that's not the wrong the thing i just don't understand it enough yeah so what i do is like i create the like I was losing when I create these little snippets. Yeah, I create a little, you know, to kind of say, "Oh, this person's coming up. Let them share." And so I put it on, and then what's annoying is sometimes where I've had a guest on and they don't even share their own content, which I'm right. like, "What's the fucking point of that?" Yeah. Like, 
And then, so that's one issue. But then obviously the, how they do their tags and how they, they, they might have different names on different platforms of tags. So getting that right, getting the hashtags correct, because that plays a massive part on, on how TikTok, how far it goes, because it's always constantly throwing your content around. Yeah. So once yeah. it's in there, it's in. But I think there's something about if it's less than time or somebody views a percentage, either 30 or 50% of what you've produced, um, it goes higher up in an algorithm ranking. Right. Okay. Um, but obviously, the more engagement you have, it, it's 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 better. So what if you notice now, a lot of Instagram videos that are being put on are actually the video created from TikTok because you'll yeah. see the handle still put on there. Yeah. So that's going to be a very interesting uh, relationship. Where I'm betting for the future is I think YouTube Shorts is going to take over TikTok. You know, it's so it's so interesting you say that because little kids, certainly like I know my little cousins, they you know, they're not allowed to have TikTok accounts, but everybody's got YouTube. Everybody's got YouTube on their TV, yeah. on their device. So they're just watching YouTube shorts. And it's fascinating because that's not even a platform that I've thought about creating for at this point. So you, you're absolutely right. But you have to create something that's 60 seconds or less. Right for it to go so you're almost getting double revenue if you're a massive uh, if you're a massive producer yeah if, if you're a massive show you're gonna if you're creating let's say your main show is gonna get i don't know x amount of views you can get the same amount of views for shorts and you're creating loads of bits of them but that goes against what i want to do which is long, long form. format yeah. yeah and so like i don't make enough i make two or three clips of uh, per podcast but I do like a minute or two minute because I want to know the bloody story. I don't, you know, yeah. I don't want it kind of condensed down in a, but that's not what audience. But do you think wants. that's a generational thing? Because I also think. Oh like, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, like, yeah. I mean, the other day, the other week, my kids and uh, some of my wife, me and my wife, and my kids, we actually watched Avatar the first one, which is a three hour film. So long. Three hours. And I was more amazed that they watched the film. It was that they stayed there for three hours and had captivation. So yeah. it shows me it's still there. Uh, it but, yeah, no, but if I give them, if they're watching a video and I look on their history, every video was about a quarter in. Yeah. Before they move on to the next one. Their the attention span is so, is so poor in terms of like content. It's just ridiculous. So, I think because there's sport for so much choice out of there, it 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 really makes a a big difference as well. But it's yeah. it's a whole. If you look at podcasting in itself, right? You look at Stephen Bartlett, all these guys. They've got production. They're TV shows. They're not yeah. podcasts. They're TV shows. So I think as just as much effort goes in, is it the is it the same return of investment? I'm not sure. But the market and the algorithm is is going to just determine, you know, who makes it and who doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very, very interesting time. I also, like, I, I wonder how many of these podcasts, uh, because everybody's podcast looks good on social media right now, right? Because they've all got, like you said, they're nice visually. They're presented yeah, yeah, very, yeah. very well. You, They look like TV shows. I want to know what the actual figures are like for downloads of the episodes, because it'd be interesting to see if the social media success translates into uh subscribing listeners as well i'm not i'm not sure if it does in every no, single case. yeah i mean it's a bit of a strange one because like ghana in it made a conscious decision to start doing podcasts in india and i noticed the first ones that i wrote and i had punjabi in the title 
so my uh, I had the Punjabi villains on there, so they're a fan group based uh, of South Asian yeah. for Aston Villa. Because they had Punjabi in the title, it just went massive. Oh, like, wow, it, okay. it just made no sense at all. Yeah, why it was huge, and because it's just the new emerging market. I think we're like about two years behind even mainstream. I think the other thing is like the average episode that people stop from podcasting is episode seventy. So I think you know I'm I'm mid seventies now. So I'm oh man, of... does that mean yeah. nobody's going to listen to this episode? <laughs> no, no, it's no, it's when people, it's when not, it's it's when the the makers give up. <laughs> right. Okay yeah, okay. okay. Yeah. So it's not it's not from the guest point of view. Yeah. It's just that like, it's one of the common things that people say. Bloody hell, you've done a lot, and I'm like. Yeah, have you? You know, the the, the effort is ridiculous. You so know, this is the, this is just the foundation point then. To because if if you're saying most people stop at seventy, then the ones that exceed that, they're the ones who are kind of really retaining those listeners as well. I'm guessing three three to five years is when you'll see the first kind of boost that where you go into it from there. Wow! But like Joe Rogan was doing it for. I think it was eight years before he started it. But don't forget, you know, like somebody like him is a real massive anomaly because he was getting TV exposure. He was on the UFC. He was successful in different platforms yeah. before he came over. Somebody like Stephen Bartlett is a really good example from that because there isn't a kind of a UK comparison. But there isn't even a, a South Asian, you know, the South Asian podcasting. So you've got a lot of female uh, podcasters coming. There's a couple of guys who, who do it as well. There isn't that much, but... The return of investment, like I'm not, I can't buy a house off this. No chance. In fact, it costs me money. Yeah. And that's the true test of the passion, you know, like your parents taking you to your thing. Yeah. Right. And then that's why, you know, whereas if you've already built up a, your personality and you're able to do it, then, you know, there is, there is longevity within that. And, and the production, the, the quality of your video is going to be a big thing. You know, yeah. I get more viewers and stuff, but some people who listen on Spotify and all that, I get a lot more feedback from my audio uh, community that comes in. It's fascinating. It's really, really fascinating. Ricky, thank you so much for yeah, having man. me on. All the best, man. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm really glad we got this conversation. And uh, thank you. No, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Sorry it took so long for this to actually happen. But <laughs> it's I'm, glad, fine, I'm glad it happened at this time because I feel like it's a really interesting time before my new show starts as well to have this conversation. So thank you. Thank you, man. Cheers. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done.